since I met my wife, there has been kind of this ongoing thing between us about my inability to swim. Um, I would like to say she is sympathetic, has been sympathetic about it, but it's been more of mocking and, and ridicule for 12 years. And I, I, I tell her that I can swim, I just choose not to. And the fact that every time we're on holidays and there's a pool or we're at the beach, there's the sea, I don't go in, sort of backs up her, her hypothesis that I, I can't swim. But I tell her I can. I, I got my five-meter badge when I was in Millington Primary School. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I got my 10-meter badge. Uh, there's things that your parents keep from your childhood that you wish they didn't. And then there's some things that you wish they had kept. And I wish they had kept those little pair of Speedos. Um, because I'm pretty sure there is a 10-meter badge on... On those, but like I say, it's just been uh, you know, anytime we're near water, just the mocking and the ridicule, it's just constant and beaten down uh, with it that, that, I, that I can't swim. Um, and then uh, maybe four months ago, three, four months ago, we were at the Sleeve Dollard Hotel for a night. Somebody had been so kind as to give us a, a gift voucher for there, and we were at the Sleeve Dollard, a lovely, lovely romantic night away, just me and Becky and Elijah uh, in, the, in the room. <laughs> Living the dream right there, guys. Eh? The romance never dies in our house. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just lovely at 9 o'clock at night, trying to be as quiet as possible as you're watching the iPad so you don't wake up the 8 or 9-year-old beside you. But uh, we were at the Sleeve Dollard Hotel, and, uh, and uh, when you go to the Sleeve Dollard, you have to go use the spa. I mean, it's, you're paying for it, so you have to use it. And you want to put on the white robe, the white dress and gown. I mean, how comfortable are those things? Like, you're like, where do they find them? Like, I want to steal it, but I know that they will charge me. And then you get the wee slippers that you can steal, the wee, the wee white comfy slippers that most of you have a couple of pairs at home. Um, seven years later, they're your, your slippers that you're wearing still. And uh, so we went down to the pool. We booked our one-hour slot, which is what you can get now. We went down to the pool. We're in the pool in the sleeve, Donard, and the ridicule starts. You know, Daddy, are you not going to swim? Ha, ha, ha. You know, yeah, yes, hubby, are you not going to swim? Ha, 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 ha. And I don't know what happened in that moment, okay? I don't know what happened in that moment, but something happened. And I kicked off from one end of the pool, and I went under the water, and I swam underwater from one end to the next. It was glorious. It was beautiful. It was like a dolphin. It was like flipper. You know, it was like... And I emerged gracefully at the other end of the pool, and I looked down at my wife and my son, and I had this look on my face like, what do you think about that then? And they were stunned. They were shocked. They couldn't believe it. Because as much as she ridiculed me, Becky can't swim underwater. I just swam a length underwater. I just swam a length underwater. And uh, and they'd never, in 12 years, she didn't think I could swim. You know, know, there's just some things you want to keep for later in marriage. You know what I mean? You don't don't want to give everything up front. You want to keep one or two wee things for later in marriage. But actually, here's the truth of the matter. As shocked as Becky was, can I tell you who was even more shocked? (laughs) Can I be, I've never actually, uh, truthfully, I've never actually told her this. I was more shocked than she was. I've tried to act as if like I knew I could do it. I had no, I, I have no idea what, it must have been the Holy Ghost anointing, the, the aquatic anointing of the Holy Ghost, the, the, the flipper anointing, the shamu anointing of the Holy Ghost. But I, I had no idea 
that I could swim underwater. It was just, it was like the perfect conditions. It was warm and it was just the right time and the right place. And, and I don't know what came over, but, but what I realized that day was that I could do something that for 12 years I had convinced myself I couldn't do. I was able to do something that I didn't think. There was something within me that I didn't know was there. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. And what you would maybe know as the parable of the talents. It's actually not the best name for it. Because when we think of talent, we think of Britain's got talent. We think of people who can sing or the guys up here or people who are artistic or people who are sporty. And we think that's a talent, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 25. Talent was actually a, a unit of measurement. It was a weight. We could call it the parable of the, the kilograms. A talent was actually 58.9 kilograms, to be precise. So when Jesus is talking about the parable of the talents, he's talking about weight. He's talking about the weight of gifts, abilities, uh, resources, uh, just all the stuff that God has deposited within you. So if somebody says to you, have you put on weight? Say, no, I'm just more talented than you skinny people, okay? Because God has put more weight in me. I carry more of heaven. But, but a talent was a, a weight, a measurement. And actually the NIV puts it as bags of gold, which is maybe a, a better way that you have gold, you have bags of gold inside you. And so we're going to be thinking about that today. Uh, really, the parables are, we know what parables are, stories that Jesus told with a greater reality. He used everyday items, everyday scenarios that people would have understood to express what the kingdom was like, to express what the rule of God was like, to express what life is like when God is in charge. And in Matthew 25, it's three parables in a row. And they're about what happens at the end of time. Matthew 24, I preached on a while ago, the signs of the end of the age. Then Matthew 25 is three parables of the wise and foolish virgins who five had oil, five didn't. The last one is the sheep and the goats where God divides people into sheep and goats. But the middle one is about the parable of the talents or the parable of uh, the gold bags, the bags of gold. And he, what Jesus is trying to talk about here is, is when he comes back and he is coming back, this is what it's going to be like. This is expressing what life will be like when Jesus returns to earth one day. He came 2,000 years ago, and when he was on earth, he said, I am coming back. And so in the story, there's one master, and that's Jesus. There's three workers, three servants, and that's us. We're the people who serve Jesus. And there's two mindsets, and we're going to see that they're completely different. Two ways of viewing what God has deposited within us. But here's how he starts it, Matthew 25, 14. Again, it, thus the kingdom of God, will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. And the first word I want to give you today is this, entrustment. God has entrusted you with something. Like I said, a talent in those days was a weight. And actually, the, the amount that, that the person with one talent gets, it's actually equivalent to 20 years' wages for a day laborer. We, it would be around half a million pounds today. So even the person who got one bag of gold, one talent, got an incredible amount of wealth entrusted to them. 
And I was thinking about this. I mean, if you had saved for 20 years, 30 years, if you had saved maybe, say, 100,000 towards a house or towards something, who would you entrust that with? Who would you give it to knowing that they were going to look after it and perhaps even get more for it, that they would invest it and bring back more? There'd be very few people, if, if anybody, you would trust with that amount of wealth. And yet it says here that God entrusts us with a huge amount. And actually, I didn't even mention this in the first service, but I actually just sense that there's something on this, that, that we often talk in church about us trusting God. We very rarely talk about God trusting us. That God has entrusted you. God has put things into your life, people into your life, resources into your life, gifts and talents and abilities and, 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 and finances and family and work and all of the things God has given you. Do you know what that's him saying? I trust you with this. You know, I, I, think, I think God trusts me more than I trust me sometimes. Do you feel like that? Like, like God has been better to me than I think I deserve. In fact, I know he has. And, and I feel like God sometimes trusts me more than I trust me. I'm not sure I would trust me the way he does. And yet he does. When God gives you something, he trusts you with it. And they all get something. No one gets nothing. It wasn't that one got five, one got two, and poor Johnny over here, he got nothing. They all got something. In other words, we have all been entrusted with something. And you might think, well, look at my life, I've none. No, you do. God has entrusted you. He has poured gold. You have a bag of gold. You have treasure within you. He has gifted you. He has resourced you. He has blessed you. But the next thing I see is this. They don't all receive the same amount. Jesus makes it very clear. One receives five bags, one receives two, and one receives one. And while we have all been blessed and we've all been resourced and we've all been gifted by God, the simple reality of life is this. Not everyone is equally gifted. Not everyone is equally blessed. God is good. God is just. But sometimes it doesn't look like God is fair. Because we look at some people and they seem to be so much more gifted and blessed. And, you know, like, like we, I'm sure most of you had not one person in school who everything they touched turned to gold. You know, they were good at maths. They were great at sport. They were really musical. They could sing. They were really good looking. They could eat whatever they want and they never put on weight. They never got spots like you did. You know, I mean, we had names for people like that, but I can't use them in church. Um, you know, that person who just seems to have it all. They got the five bags of gold. Me, I maybe got a few rusty copper coins. You know, that's, that's kind of the mentality. Like if I were to say to you, if I were to say to you, do you think you're a five-bag person, a two-bag person, or a one-bag person? I guarantee you nobody here would go, I'm a five-bagger. I guarantee you. And, but I guarantee you as God looks at your life, he looks at you, some of you. And he would say, I've given you five bags. In fact, very few of us would say, I'm a two-bagger. You'd go, nah, I'm a one-bagger. I mean, if I have to stretch, I'm a one-bagger. And yet God would look and he says, in a room like this, You've all been given a huge deposit. Some of you have five bags, some of you have two bags, some of you have one. But I have blessed all of you with resources. And the third thing is this. It says that each of them was given according to their ability. 
See, the gift and the ability are different. The gift comes from God. The ability is our capacity to use that gift. I was talking about Louise earlier when I met her in Shankill, 16 years ago. And I remember I was, it was the curacy rounds in Shankill and you were checking out churches to see if you thought maybe that you wanted to go and be a curator, an assistant pastor there. And I had only two on my list. You were meant to like go and look at six, but I looked at the list and went, no, no, that won't work. And there was two I looked at. And uh, one of them was Shankill Lurgan. And I remember slipping into the balcony one Sunday just to kind of spy out the land. And, uh, and there was this wee 17 year old girl on stage, like, like looking like, like a bear, or uh, was it a, what do you call it with the headlights? What? Rabbit in the headlights, yeah. I mean, you, you were like, uh, you, and I just, I, I look now as she leads this morning and I go, God deposited something within her, but she developed it. We watch people up here. Do you ever look at somebody or a sports person or a singer or somebody and you go, they're gifted? Yes, that might be true, but they developed it. They worked on it. Here's the way I think of it. God's gifts come flat-packed. How many of you enjoy putting together flat-packed furniture, apart from Mal, who we are going to pray for? I hate it. Anybody else hate putting them together? Like, I love the... I normally like the final result. There's always, like, something that just doesn't look right. And you claim it's because they left out a part in the box or something like that. Like, we, Elijah, our, our, our little nine-year-old, what did he want for Christmas this year? A double bed. I didn't have a double bed till I was 30. But our, honest, and that's a true story. That is a true story. Our kid at nine, I mean, what's he going to I don't know. But they, like, he wanted a double bed. Okay, so we got him a double bed. Santa got him a double bed. And, uh, but Santa didn't put it together. Okay, thanks, Santa, for leaving it to Daddy to put it together. So on Christmas Day, I'm putting this bed. Now, this is not a huge job. Like, it's a fairly, the sweat is lashing off me. Like, you'd think I was in a, like, there's nothing makes a man like me perspire more than putting together flat-packed furniture. I think God, when he creates you, he puts flat-packed within you. The gifts are there, but some assembly is required. Some assembly is required, and that is our job. God gives us the gifts, but our ability is our capacity to use them. And it says that God gives them according to our our ability. In other words, God looks at you, and he says, you have this capacity, so this is what I'm giving you. In other words, he doesn't give you more than you're able to do something with. God will not give you something that you're unable to do something with. If God has given you a gift, if he's given you ability, if he's given you resources, if he's given you finances, if he's given you a family, if he's given you people to look after, it's because he knows that you have the ability to do something with it. He will not judge you for what you can't do with what he has given because he he knows what you can do. He knows what you can do with it. You know, there's people who have been given far less than me who have done far more. Like, do you ever, do you ever meet people who you went to school with? And 20 years later, you, went, you go, they became that. Now, that can work either way, can't it? It can be, they became that, didn't they do amazing? They couldn't add six and six in school and now they're an accountant. Like, you know, running an accountant. Or it could be, 
in school they were amazing, but they, they've become that. And you don't want to judge, but you're like, what happened along the journey? Like, you were so gifted. You had so much potential. Like, I, I thought you would be the, the most likely to succeed, and something along the line, somewhere along the line, you didn't use what God had deposited within you. Back to the parable. They're each given bags of gold. They're entrusted So the first word is entrustment. The second word is expectation. God has expectations. Look at verses 16 to 18. The man who received five bags of gold went out at once, went out at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Notice the master gives them the entrustment, but he doesn't tell them what to do with it. He doesn't give them detailed instructions. He doesn't micromanage them. He doesn't look over their shoulder. He gave it to them, and he's, he, he knows their ability. He knows their capacity, and so he says, you go and do with this what you want. It's up to you. And as Christians, sometimes we struggle with that because we there's something within the Christian mentality, particularly today and particularly in churches, I think, like ours maybe, where we want God to tell us every single thing to do. Like we want guidance about everything. We want direction about everything. I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm just wanting God to speak. I'm just waiting on the Lord, and the Lord's waiting on you. Because he, he, he gives it to you, and I, I, think, I think sometimes we see God's will as a tightrope, and it's more like a big open field with boundaries and borders. Yes, there are parameters, but God says, I have given you this. Go and do what you want. He gave them the five bags, the two bags, the one bag of gold, a huge entrustment. And he says, go and do whatever you want with it. All I want you to know is I'll be coming back to see what you've done with it. And I think God has put things within us. And we're trying to go, God, do you want me to do this or that? Should I do A, B or C? And God goes, I don't care which one you do. Just do something with it because we're paralyzed into passivity. We, 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 we spiritualize it and we say we're praying about it. And yes, there are things I'm all about prayer. We, there's times when God does be really clear and direct about things. But I think a lot of the time God goes, I have given you this. Just use it. Like develop it, grow it, do something with it. But while you're praying and waiting on me, I'm waiting on you to actually do something with it. And it says they went out at once, the guy with five and the guy with two. They went out at once and put his money to work. They went out at once. Another translation says immediately. In other words, they took responsibility. They took ownership They saw themselves as this has been entrusted to me. It is now my job to do something with it. I'm not just someone who is looking after this. I I see myself as an owner. And there's a difference between an owner and an employee. Some of you here own businesses. Some of you are employees in businesses. But the owner, you you can be an employee but still have an owner mindset. And here's what that means. The best way to illustrate would be this. Imagine you want to buy a diamond ring. Okay, an expensive diamond ring. And you, want to, you, you go to the jewelers one afternoon, late one afternoon. It closes at 5.30. You pull up at 5.25 outside the jewelers. Somebody's putting the shutter down. You stop, you get out. You say, I didn't think you closed at 5.30. It's only 5.25. They say, well, I'm closing now. You go, well, actually, I am going to spend £4,000 on a diamond ring. And they go, sorry, I'm closing. 
Are you dealing with an employee or an owner? An employee. If you're dealing with the owner, that shutter is going back up. That's the difference in mentality. An owner sees themselves as having responsibility. An owner looks at something, a problem that might not be theirs, but if they can solve it, they do. An owner's not always thinking, what's the bare minimum I can do, but how can I make the most of what I have? I'm part of a mentorship group uh, online with a guy called Paul Scanlon, who used to lead a a huge church in, in Bradford called Abundant Life Church, now Life Church. And uh, he tells a story about how when he was leading the church one day, there was a staff meeting and he walked in and there was a stain on the carpet. And he stood at the side just to see what would happen. And he watched as every staff member stopped, looked at the stain and walked on. And his bloody head was boiling. And he went into the staff meeting and he said, guys, you all saw the stain out there. Why didn't you do anything? And I was like, well, it's not our job. Somebody else gets paid. Somebody else will do it. And he realized in that day he had an employee culture and not a ownership culture because an owner would look at and go that might not be my job but if I can change it I'm going to do something about it you know as a church the sort of culture I want us to have in here is an ownership culture that you feel like you're a stakeholder in this that you're not a consumer you're not someone who comes along and sits on a seat and says entertain me you're not someone who comes along and just takes and each week You're not someone who spectates. You're someone who actually feels, I am part of this. I have an ownership. I have a responsibility in this place. I will do whatever I can do to contribute. I will give whatever I can give so that this church can reach more people. I'm not going to go, well, somebody else can do it. It's not my job. I I might not be able to do much, but I will do what I can do. And I'm so glad that we have people like that. We have so many people in this church. I say it again and again. I never sit on a Saturday night saying, Becky, I wonder will the worship team show up tomorrow? I wonder will the guys be in sound? I wonder will the welcome team? I wonder will the kids team? No, I've never once in four and a half years that I've been here had to have that concern. Why? Because they have an ownership mentality. They have an ownership mentality. They just show up and they keep doing it week after week after week because they take responsibility. You know, as a minister, can I say that is the greatest joy to lead that? I've been in other churches where you are sitting on Saturday night getting text messages at 11 o'clock going, can't make it tomorrow. It's such a joy when you have people who take responsibility, who own what God has given them and actually develop it and, and use it. You know, the guys who, and girls I'm sure, who took a rickety old derelict shed and turned it into the Youth and Children's Centre out there. If, you've, if you have never seen the shed, go out and have a look at it. Like it was something that you looked at and went, that is just fit for burning. And we probably spent about £20,000 roughly on it, and it's worth £100,000. Why? Because people here took what God had given them, and they poured hours and hours and hours. They weren't builders, they weren't laborers, they weren't carpenters, most of them. But there were people who thought, I have some skills that I can use here. And it's not just in here, it's out there. I'm not just, this is not a volunteer drive, okay? There's not sign-up sheets at the back, okay? I just want you to know that. It's wherever you go, wherever God has placed you, what have you got? Can I encourage you in your job to see yourself as an owner, not just an employee? I guarantee, sometimes people come to me and they say, I'm really annoyed because everybody's got promoted except me. 
And when I start to dig a bit deeper, their attitude stinks. They do the bare minimum. They arrive late and leave early. And they wonder why everybody's got promoted. If you see yourself as more than just an employee, as you see yourself as somebody who is committed, someone who will give more than the bare minimum, I guarantee you, you'll end up promoted. Second thing they see here is they went immediately. They went immediately. They didn't waste time. They realized that this is an opportunity. Time is short. I'm going to do whatever I can with it. I think it was Leonard Ravenhill who once said, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized in the lifetime of an opportunity. In other words, what God has given you and what he has blessed you with, one day will come to an end. That's a nice way of saying you're going to die, okay? That's just me. That's a nice way of saying you're going to die. That actually life is short. Life is short. That our years are finite. And so God says to us, you know what? If you have limited time and I have given you this, I want you to put it to work before it's too late. I don't want you to wait until, you know, like for many people, their favorite day of the week is someday. Someday I'll do this. When the kid goes to school, when the kid gets older, when the kid goes to university, when the kid gets married, when the grandkids go to school, and someday becomes what I would have, should have, could have done when they look back in their life but didn't do because they kept putting it off. God would say, no, today, today use what you have. Today, immediately. There's a book called The Five Second Rule by a a lady called Mel Robbins. I don't think it's a Christian book. But her thing is this, that when you're faced with a choice between something that you know you should do, but you don't feel like doing it, your feelings will always win. So like, for example, you open the fridge and there's a cheesecake and there's salad. You know what you should do, That's not what you do. And her thing is this. When you're faced with one of those situations, act within five seconds. Do something within five seconds to move towards the thing that you know that you should do. Come home from work at night. I should go to the gym. But I could watch Netflix. She would say, within five seconds, get up and get those trainers on. I should give, I know I should give to the church. I'll, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it sometime. No, get online within five seconds and start setting up that direct debit or standing order, whatever it is. Guys, I should ask that girl out. Within five seconds, go, no, don't do that, guys. Some of you don't do that. Um, but, but it is that sense of if, stop procrastinating, stop putting it off. If there's something that you know you should do, do it immediately it says immediately they did it they didn't wait until the perfect time they didn't pray about it for four months they got on with it immediately it's like the story of two little boys playing and one turns to the other and says if you had a million pounds would you give me half and he says if i had a million pounds i'd give you half he says if you had a thousand pounds would you give me half if i had a thousand pounds i would give you 500 of it if you had a hundred pounds would you give me half like you're my best friend of I had a hundred pounds, I would give you half. If you had a pound, would you give me half? That's not fair. You know I've got a pound in my pocket. <laughs> While it was hypothetical, 
they had the best of intentions. But when it actually became reality, it was a different matter. You know, somebody wrote on Twitter this week, what's the difference between one word, they asked the question, what's one word between someone who's successful and someone who isn't? And here's what I wrote. Implementation. Not education. Not gifts. Not background. Implementation. Because there's people who can be gifted and intelligent but don't do anything with it. But the people who have seen succeed in life, the people who have, who have done good things in life, who have made a difference, who have made a dent in the world, are the people who take whatever it is, as little as it is, and they do something with it. What about the third guy with the one bag of gold? What did he do? He dug a hole in the ground and he buried it. He did nothing with it. He buried it. Why did he do nothing? Why did he do nothing? Could it be because he looked at the other two and felt like what he had wasn't much? Like, I I was trying to picture this in my head. Billy. One bag Billy. Okay? Gets called in by the master and the master gives him a bag of gold and this is incredible. Billy has never had this much in his life. And the master gives him a bag of gold and Billy goes skipping down the road. He's got a bag, I've got a bag of gold. I've got a bag of gold. Then he bumps into Tommy. And Tommy says, did you get the bags? Billy goes, bags? Plural. And two bag Tommy goes, yeah, two bags. I've got two bags of gold. And Billy goes, well, I've only got one. And he was really pleased a minute ago with his one. But right now he looks at two bag Tommy and one bag Billy doesn't feel... Feels a bit hard done by. Two bag Tommy feels amazing at this point. Until five bag Freddy comes along. He's got a wheelbarrow. He can't carry his five bags. And five bag Freddy comes along and goes, Did you get the bags? And two bag Tommy looks in there and goes, Aye, I've got two. How did you get five? And suddenly his two and his one don't look like much. When a minute ago it seemed like a huge amount. You know, our culture. It's so into comparison. We don't even realize it. I mean, it's almost like the whole of social media was just designed to make you realize just how much better everybody else's life is than yours. Do you know what I mean? Like you go on Facebook or Instagram and everybody is just having the best holiday ever. In the nicest places. With the most beautiful teeth. You know, and the most perfect tan. And the most perfect, well-behaved children ever. And the best food. And their friends are so good looking. And they're out on a Saturday night having the best time. And you're trying to find something on ITV player that you haven't watched yet. Because that's the extent of your Saturday night. It's fake. It's not real. It's a moment. It's a highlight. But it's not real. But we look at their life. We look at their... Can I tell you, I think I'm an okay preacher until I go on YouTube. And I watch some of the real preachers out there. And then I get really depressed. I'm like, I'm like a rookie. I'm like... Honestly, I'm not, and I'm not just saying that. My wife will tell you. I, I, I look at some of these and I go, oh, goodness, I'll never be able to do it. So it's not just you. I'm sure you look at other parents or families and you go, goodness, how, how do they like, get their kids to behave so well? They don't! 
It's only in that five minutes that you saw them that they did. The rest of the time, it's a screaming match. Look at that marriage. I mean, I, I've seen so many friends on Facebook or Instagram just gushing. Uh, married five years, best five years ever. I couldn't ask for anyone better. And three weeks later, they're getting divorced. Like, that is, I've seen that happen. It's all a lie. It's all fake. We look at somebody else's highlight reel and we compare it to our daily reality. And it's not real. But we, we compare. And we compare our gifts. We compare what God has given us. And we look at what God... And it always looks like they have more. It very rarely looks like they have got less than us. And so we go, well, I can't do much. I mean, they can do so much. God has given you so much. Comparison kills. And when you don't acknowledge what God has given you, you don't use it. If you won't see the treasure, the gold, the talents, the, the blessings he has poured into your life, you won't use them. I think it's really important that we get beyond this false humility. We are amazing at false humility in Northern Ireland. I, I could never do that. Not me. I mean, they could, I could never do that. Not me. No, no. And you know what? Humility is really important, but false humility is actually denying what God has put within you. False humility is actually saying, I have nothing when God is going, really? Because as your father, I have given you so much and I want you to use it. All that we have comes from him. We're nearly done. Verses 19 to 23. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five brought another five. He says, see, I've gained five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The woman with two bags came and said, Master, I've, I've got two more. And he says the same thing. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The master comes back. It says, after a long time. I'm sure in their minds they wondered if he was ever coming back. And Jesus said, I am coming back. But 2,000 years later, he hasn't returned. You see, the first Christians lived with the reality that Jesus could come back at any moment. And so they lived their lives in light of, if Jesus came back right now, what would I want to be seen doing? 2,000 years later, we don't really think like that anymore. But imagine if we live with the reality that Jesus could come back by lunchtime today. At any moment, at any moment, Jesus could come back how that would change our lives. And he comes back and he says, guys, what did you do with what I have given you? In other words, he's saying, I expect you to have done something with it. I gave you, I entrusted something to you. I expect you to do something with it. And the Bible teaches us that there's judgment day. Now there's judgment day for those who don't know Christ, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And they spend eternity separated from God in hell. The Bible is clear about that. But there's also a judgment for believers. And it's not a heaven or hell. We know we're going to heaven. But there's a judgment of what did you do with your life? What did you do with the gold? What did you do with the treasure? What did you do with the talents, the abilities, the blessings? The Bible speaks so much about rewards. The entire New Testament again and again talk. Just put in, in Bible Gateway a reward and you will see that our God is not a, a socialist. 
Everybody doesn't get the same. Our God rewards faithfulness. Our God, when you get to heaven, people will have more rewards than you and people will have less rewards than you, dependent on what you have done with your life. The Bible makes that really clear. We'll all be just so thankful to be with him, don't get me wrong. But the Bible makes it really clear that our God is a God who rewards. He rewards those who are faithful. He rewards those who steward well. He says, you've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. He doesn't say, well done, good and successful servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because success in the kingdom of God looks like faithfulness. Success in the kingdom of God looks like showing up again and again and again. Success in the kingdom of God isn't exciting. It's not about a stage. It's not about a platform. It's showing up behind the scenes in obscurity and private when nobody is looking again and again and again. Success in the kingdom of God is the things that only God sees. That's why he says, when you pray, go in and close the door. When you fast, don't tell anyone. When you give, do it secretly. In other words, success in heaven's eyes is the things that you don't do. This is not success. Success is who I am as a husband and father when none of you are looking. That's what success is. It's not the stuff at the front. It's the stuff that God sees you doing again and again. And he says, I will reward you. Well done, Good and faithful servant. Let's finish. Then the man who had received one bag, the one talent guy, the one bag, Billy, who buried it. He's asked, why did you do that? He says, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. Not a great way to talk to your boss. Uh, Harvesting what you have not sown and gathering what you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. At least I'd have got a few percent interest with the Ulster Bank. So So take the bag of gold. Take the bag of gold from him. And Jesus says, give it to the one who has ten. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus. Gentle Jesus making my ain't so happy here, is he? He calls him a wicked, lazy servant. That's harsh. What did he do? Did he embezzle people? Did he murder someone? Did he run over an old lady in his car and drive on? Did he have a, a party out the back with bottles of wine while there was a lockdown? A wee bit of politics there for you folks. No, he wasn't that evil. It wasn't what he did. It was what he didn't do. He did nothing. He did nothing. God says, I have given you this and you've done nothing with it. And he says, yeah, but I was afraid. I was afraid, so I buried it. You know what fear is? Fear will make you bury what God has put within you. Fear of what people think. Fear of failure. Fear of people laughing at you. Fear of it not working out. And yet the Bible teaches that God rewards those who... There's always fear. God rewards those who feel the fear. Because the others had more to lose. He only had one to lose. The other had two and the other had five to lose. God rewards those who still feel the fear. But say, I'm going to trust in faith and do this anyway. 
There's always fear. There's always a sense it can go wrong. Always. Always. But our faith in God has got to be greater than our fear of other people. Our faith in God has got to be greater than our fear of failure. Our faith in God has got to be greater than our fear that maybe we're not up to it. Because if God has put it within you, he says you're up to it. I trust you. I trust you. Fear will make you bury what you have. Fear will keep you contained. Fear will keep you locked in and hemmed in. And yet God says, you know what? If you will use what you have, I will give you more. To the one who didn't use the one, he gave the one to the ten. That doesn't seem fair. And yet God says, if I can't trust you with one, why would I give you more? You know, I was thinking about our youth group here. When Hannah came on staff three years ago, I think we had a youth group of six or seven. And now we have a youth youth group of 50-something. Why? Because she can be trusted with more. God trusts her with more. He trusted her with seven and saw what she did. He trusted her with 15, saw what she did. He trusted her with 25. And it's the same with you. He looks at you and goes, I've given you this. What have you done? Okay, I can trust you with more. I can trust you with more responsibility. I can trust you with more. I can resources. I can trust you with more. And ultimately, one day we will stand before him. That's the reality, and I'm finishing here. We will stand before God, and he will say, what did you do with what I gave you? I know you trusted Christ. You've got a door open to heaven. Don't worry about that. But what did you do with what I gave you? I entrusted so much to you. Did you use it? Folks, time is short, and eternity is long. It says in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. In other words, help us to remember that this life isn't going to go on forever. But help us to live with the end in mind. Help us to live with the reality of heaven in mind. Help us to live with the reality of standing before God one day in mind. And what do you want to hear? You wicked, lazy servant or well done, good and faithful servant? You know, I was reading a book years ago um, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's like one of those best-selling kind of business books. And there's a chapter in it called Begin With The End In Mind. And I just, I, I, I want to share just what it says at the start of that chapter because I've been thinking about it this week, actually. It says, in your mind's eye, see yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. Picture yourself driving up to the funeral home or, or to the church and you get out of the car and you, you walk inside the building and you notice the flowers, you hear the music playing quietly in the background. You see the faces of friends and family all around you in there. Some of them are smiling with appreciation of the memory and some of them are crying but you sort of nod at them as you're going down the aisle. And you walk to the front and there's an open casket there and you look in and it's you. It's your funeral. And Stephen Covey in the book says, three years from now, imagine you're attending your own funeral. I hope you're not. But three years from now, he said, imagine three years from now, imagine you're at your own funeral. And he says, there's four people. You look at the program, the order of service, and there's four people to speak. 
One of them is a, a somebody from your immediate family, your spouse, your brother, your sister, your mother, father, son, daughter. So an immediate family member. The second is a close friend, someone who, who knew what you were like. Third one is a colleague or a co-worker, someone who saw you at work. And the fourth one is someone in church or a voluntary organization, somewhere that you served. And he says, write down what you would want them to say about you in three years from now. And then he says, is the way you're living your life today in line with how you want to be remembered? I find that really challenging. I've been thinking about that this week. I've been thinking, how, how would I want... If, you know, I'm not talking about like, the funerals where everybody lies. I'm talking about if people were being really honest. Like if they were being really honest, what would I want people to say about me? Because there's two stories, there's, you know... One could be the well done, and one could be he had potential, but he wasted it. And that's still to be judged for all of us. If you're breathing here, that's still to be judged. But we can choose today to live with the end in mind, to live as if we're going to stand before a God one day. And he's going to ask us to give an account. And I want to hear this. Well done. Well done, Greg. I want you to hear well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. What a joy that.